Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths they are linked to. Hello there, I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker is here as well. We're your co-host and we've got a big episode. Seton has had many phone conversations and passed back and forth emails with Alec Murdoch's brother, John Marvin. So that we will talk about in a little bit. Uh, also, the previous episode where Mark Tinsley, the attorney for the Beach family, talked about an investigator following Paul Murdoch up until about three days before he was murdered. There's some news on that. Uh, before we get to it all, Seton, how do they get hold of us? You can find us on our Facebook page, which is Murdoch Podcast, or on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. And we begin with a SLED press release, which we have not heard from them in a long time. Yep. And I guess they released this based on some of the things that other podcasts and blogs and internet news places uh, have said. And the release came on March 31st. It says, in recent days, some media outlets have published unfounded and ill-informed speculation regarding the role of the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office in the investigation of the murders of Paul Murdoch and his mother, Maggie Murdoch. Per long-standing policies, SLED and the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office will not comment on specifics of any case while it is still under investigation. However, given the persistence of unsubstantiated assertions both fairness and public confidence in the integrity of the process requires a limited response. In the hours following the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch on June 7, 2021, SLED notified 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office officials to inform them of what transpired in Colleton County and to request their assistance in the investigation. SLED's notification and the Solicitor's Office's participation in investigations are routine in the 14th Circuit. From the first hours of SLED's investigation, Chief Mark Keel was direct and regular contact with both 14th Circuit Solicitor Duffy Stone and SC Attorney General Alan Wilson. All agreed that should evidence emerge establishing a potential conflict, Chief Keel would contact Solicitor Stone and Attorney General Wilson immediately. Chief Keel did so and Stone immediately recused himself from the case on August 11, 2021. At the scene and in the subsequent days, solicitor's office investigators acted solely under SLED's direction. At no time did the solicitor's office conduct a separate or parallel investigation or act in any manner to undermine SLED's role as the lead investigative agency. On a related note, much has been made about media photographs taken at the scene on June 8th that depicts solicitors, office investigators, speaking with a member of the Murdoch family. Not only was the depicted action undertaken at SLED's request, the photographs were taken after the crime scene had been processed and after SLED had cleared the Murdoch family to return to the property. Other law enforcement agencies, including SLED, were present at the time. Any speculation to the contrary is simply false. Chief Keel has maintained from the outset that SLED will pursue justice for Maggie and Paul no matter where that leads, and SLED's resolve in that regard has not wavered. And now we bring in our legal analysts for this podcast and a 
Former prosecutor and former defense attorney John Snyder joins us again. Hello, John. Hello. Hey, so John, my first question is, is this a big cover your butt by SLED and the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office? No, what, what I think this is, is law enforcement reassuring the public that they are fully locked into this investigation, that the investigation is being done above reproach, and that the investigation will continue on using the highest principles that could be used to discover who's responsible for these crimes. So I know back in June and July and August, when we talked to you about this, there were questions about whether Duffy Stone should have recused himself at that time. And now these kind of questions are coming back up again. So do you still kind of stick by what you said back then that he he recused himself at the appropriate time or should he have recused himself immediately? No, I think he recused himself at the appropriate time. You have a live active crime scene. Uh, evidence and witnesses testimony does not get better with age. It, it only gets worse. And so you need to have somebody there making sure that things are being collected and, and they're all collected by procedure. And so if the procedures are all being followed and the forensic um, team is able to do what they need to do, his presence there or his involvement will not affect the outcome of a case. The reason that they released this now seems to be because of rumors that were kicking around about a mishandling of some of the evidence. It was a response to internet news and blogs and whatnot. Is that uh, unusual to have a response, or are they putting the hammer down and saying, all right, people, let's not start just randomly saying things and making things up or having false accusations about how we handle this because we're going to be on this. Again, I mean, that's part of why people listen to this, part of why people tune into shows on television or, or to kind of think about cases that are going on and moving forward. And so it's natural to want to know as much as we can. It's normal for people that are following the details to engage in some conjecture and maybe maybe create some theories. And, and then it's, it's normal for law enforcement to come back and say, hey, that's great, but let, let, me, let us remind you, these are, these are the facts that we know at this time. I think it's healthy for law enforcement to do this. We, we do this. Lots of people that are involved in true crime coverage speculate or kind of give ideas of what things might be. And so it's actually healthy for the system for the people that are in the know to come, come in and say, here's what's going on at this time. And it'll shake out eventually whether what they're saying is 100% true or a little bit true or whether the rumors are true. It'll all shake out. You just got to wait for that to happen. Yes. Law enforcement follows procedures and defense lawyers' jobs are to point out when the procedures weren't followed. It's a system of rules and the rules apply beginning at the collection of evidence on the state and prosecutor's side. Now uh, we want to move on to a conversation that Seton had with John Marvin Murdoch, who is 
Alec's brother, the non-attorney brother, and he spoke to the Island Packet. He and his wife had a conversation with the Post and Courier from Charleston, and Seton has had multiple phone conversations with John Marvin. So this is his take on some of these things. Well, first I want to say we tried to get him to come on the podcast, but he does not listen to podcasts, so he wasn't really super familiar with the format, so he was more comfortable with just giving me an interview. I know there's great criticism is going to come. To me, this is a person that should uh, be heard, and any players in this whole story, we are more than happy to talk to. We're just telling you what they said. You can decide for yourself. Now, Seton, let's go to what John Marvin told you about the night of the murders. Start with his description of Alec's uh, phone call. Right, so he says he got a call from Alec the night of the murders. Alec was very distraught and told him to get there quickly that Maggie and Paul had been hurt bad. Um, and he just kept repeating, it was not good. It was not good. And on the 911 call, he said they were dead. So maybe he didn't want to break it to him that way or whatever the case may be. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how anyone reacts in that situation, but he just said Alec was extremely upset. Now, I want to get Snyder's observation on the next thing that John Marvin talked to you about is what John Marvin saw when he arrived. Right. So he says when he arrived, which he was coming from O'Kady, so is a little bit of a distance from Moselle, but he said that he observed that law enforcement had created a perimeter of approximately 50 to 75 yards around what he presumed to be the bodies of Maggie and Paul, which was near the dog kennels. They were covered with sheets, so he did not see the bodies and he kind of considered that to be the crime scene. Okay. On first blush, John, you've been to these kind of crime scenes. That seems about right. The size of the perimeter. Do things, anything seem weird there? No, I think that's, I think that's normal. I think you, you secure as much of an area that could possibly contain any evidence so you can, you can create a log right away of who's, who's inside of the yellow tape. Now, I want to ask about this, too, because John Marvin told you something about well, the fact that everybody was crying when he got there and they didn't want to leave and it's well into the night. What did John Marvin say? Where did they go? Law enforcement knew they were advised, but the group was going into the house because they didn't want to leave the scene. And eventually they did go back to spend the night at Alec's parents' house, but um, that they were allowed to go back into the Moselle house. Okay, is that uh, going into the Moselle house? Now, not been at a crime scene like this. I've just seen it. I would assume that that house was checked before they let people in, or does it not count as the crime scene, or how does that work? Okay, so this is where everybody treats things somewhat differently. So if you think that part of the crime took place inside of the house— you would secure the house. You would make sure that no one went in or out unless they were logged. You'd put things over your shoes so that there weren't shoe prints everywhere. Because what you don't want to have is a crime scene spoiled or contaminated. That's the biggest issue that is on the mind of the forensic team at the time a murder is reported. So how long, just out of curiosity, does it typically take to clear a crime scene? Depends on the crime and depends on 
maybe you know pretty quickly. Maybe you find out that you've got a, a dead body. There's eyewitnesses that say Timmy pulled the trigger. Okay, well, then you go find Timmy. So you collect evidence, but you've got kind of your main suspect. If you don't have a suspect, then you really lean on forensics to help you provide clues to who is responsible for the death. Well, and here's one of the, one of the things, too, to think about is that John Marvin and the other family members and Alec would have had a presence in that home even if they didn't go in. So in other words, shoe prints, fingerprints, fibers, any of that stuff would already exist because they've been in that house often, right? So it's not like you're introducing a stranger. No, but still, you, you, with the law enforcement agencies I worked with, the way they did things, they were, you know, hyper-controlled environment because yeah. every yeah. time somebody comes into the crime scene, they also become a potential witness. And so when years later, when it gets to court, you're going to give to the defense counsel a list of everyone that was at the crime scene and all those people need to be interviewed. Like you want to kind of encapsulate as best you can the, the moment the crime occurred. Or two possibilities. One is they didn't believe the crime had anything to do with the house. There was, there was no evidence that it had to do with the house, so they didn't worry about it. A second would be that they did some sort of search or, or investigation of the house and then decided it was okay, right? One of those yes. two things so, could be true. Yes. Or so pure, again, 100% conjecture. The house could have been completely locked up and there weren't any footprints from where the, if, it, if they were by a car. Or they have an eyewitness saying the car rolled up and shots were fired. And so, so you wouldn't look in the house for clues necessarily. You'd be, you'd secure the area around the bodies. Now, and, and what you're saying is right. So if you are, if you've been in the house, don't see any footprints, gone through all that, there would be DNA, hair, fibers from John Marvin if he was like, yeah, I was here last week. We were clearing land for a hunting yeah, if there's some if there's some basis that he was in the house. So I think again, every law enforcement agency does it differently. If you've got the crime scene secure and you've got the evidence, it, it would be okay to have them in the house. Okay, Seaton, you talked to John Marvin, and this has been speculated about in other podcasts and media outlets. John Marvin talks about the next night or the next morning, I'm sorry. He drives back to Moselle, and that's when he becomes aware that Maggie's phone was missing. What happens at that point? They had gone back to John Marvin and Alec's parents' house to spend the night. The next morning, they drove back to Moselle. He didn't quite remember exactly how he became aware of Maggie's phone being missing. Once he did, he knew that Buster had an app on his phone, or Buster told him, that could ping Maggie's phone. So he advised law enforcement that he had this ability to help locate Maggie's phone. And you'll see there's pictures. The Post and Courier runs them a lot. A picture of John Marvin and some officers from the solicitor's office walking toward the gate. And he says that, yes, that that happened. And he was with them because he was looking for the ping, right? 
And then what happens? Right. Because he knows it's not right there. And there's some video, actually, I think, on uh, Good Morning America of yeah. them walking together. So they were trying to locate the phone. He had Buster's phone. They were walking towards the gate. When they got close to the gate, they realized the location of the phone was a bit further. So they got in a car to drive towards the phone signal. John Marvin said well, Sled joined him. Yeah. He got in the car with uh, the officers from the solicitor's office, but then Sled did join the search. They drive down the road. They, they get in the general area. How long did he say? Did John Marvin say they were looking for the phone? And with whom were, you know, what was the setup they're looking for? Right. So when they got to the location where it, it showed that Maggie's phone was, everyone got out. And it only took them about 15 minutes to locate the phone. They were... Actually, it was a sled officer who found the phone. John Marvin was on the other side of the street. Okay, so he is saying, John Marvin told you on the phone that John Marvin did not touch Maggie's phone. No, he, he never touched the phone. He said when the phone was located, everyone backed up and they secured the scene with some flags kind of creating a crime scene. And also, he, I think he told you, correct me if I'm wrong, that people were taking pictures and people were wearing gloves. Right. He said as soon as the phone was located, everyone backed up. They took photos before anyone picked up the phone, during and after the phone was picked up, and that gloves were worn, and this was executed by SLED. So they don't hand him the phone and say, can you get this unlocked? No. They ask him to get a hold of Alec to get the code, right? Right. No, he said a supervisor's asked him uh, if he could get the code. So he contacted Alec, who got the code for him. Okay, because there was this thing out there floating around. According to John Marvin, it's not true. There was a thing floating around that said John Marvin picked up the phone, opened it up, and did all this. And then people were like, well, he could have messed with it. But John Marvin said he never touched the phone. So let's start with uh, you, John Snyder, on this. The picture of him walking with the solicitors to try to pry the pinging phone, people are trying to make a thing of that being out of line. Your thoughts? I think if he's there in the presence of law enforcement, that is acceptable because he is a he is a witness in some capacity with knowledge of the life of the the two people that are no longer with us. And so, um, in that regard, you got law enforcement in control of the of the environment you have logs being created and you have law enforcement involved in whatever he was there for that does not sound out of the ordinary it, it would be normal for an investigator to ask somebody that might know hey do you you know do you know where this person like to eat do you can you show me where was there a, a spot where is there a duck blind out there or, or deer stand out there that something might be at so, like, let me ask you a question. You've dealt with crime scenes before. Would it be unusual for to have seen you with a friend of the victim or a family member of the victim and be walking around asking things? Not at all. Not at all, because sometimes the obvious person that did a murder is, is usually somebody that knows the victim. And so you would absolutely want to see, well, how much do you know about this crime scene? <laughs> and then you're like, wow, you sure do know a lot for somebody yeah. that says they were washing their hair. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Right, right. You want to get you want to get them loose and talking. You yes. Because you never know what you're going to find out. So another question a lot a big question is what John Marvin described to me was once the phone was located, everyone backed up and they 
put out flags and created what he considered to be a crime scene. Is that how you would have handled it or is that different? The second you find some evidence, you stop, you create a perimeter, and then you begin your forensic approach. And as, as a prosecutor, you're kind of just overseeing it. The investigators are handling that. Your role is to advise because at the end of the day, if anything's not collected properly, it could be excluded as evidence at trial. And so the DA's offices all over the country work with law enforcement officers all over the country to make sure that the processes are being filed so that you can't undermine a case once it's brought for how evidence was collected. So what about these these offices like working in tandem together? Like, is that unusual? Like, I know no, was- you have task force. You have I mean, you have joint task force. You have because SLED might have somebody that's really good at handling physical evidence and and but the local sheriff's department might have somebody that teaches law enforcement training for evidence collection all over the country so you can have just it's very normal for for law enforcement to act in a coordinated effort a big question that's been surrounding this is the fact that the what's been reported is that the phone was unlocked at the scene is that appropriate or should it have been opened back at a crime lab it's in evidence. It's being opened. That, you know, that's just, that's an opinion. Um, in other words, it's not extremely suspicious. It's not suspicious. It's just a different way some people do some things. Correct. Should there have been a subpoena to unlock this phone? Yes and no. So if it was a accused person's phone, absolutely. It's a deceased person's phone, and we don't know why they're deceased. It's It would be acceptable and normal to, to want to get access as quickly as possible. I guess you could also say declare that as it's a public safety issue. Uh, well, it's, you, have, you, have, you have an emergency circumstance where right. we've got a dead body, and we don't know why. And right. so you might, get, you might be able to open their phone through a chain of custody to say, here's a text from so-and-so saying, we're on our way to come murder you in an hour. Yeah. I mean, the big question surrounding this whole thing is that everyone has talked about for months and there's still no answer is that law enforcement quickly came out and said there was no threat to public safety. That that's the big question of, okay, you unlock the phone, but then law enforcement came out so quickly and said no threat to public safety. Because Colleton sheriffs, right? That said that. Yes. Yes. Well, they didn't know anything at the time about what now has been indicted for all these kind of criminal enterprises that Alex has been accused of. So they did that stage of the investigation, you know, Alex was still above reproach in their minds. And, and then the evidence they gathered subsequent to that, I think changed that and led to indictments. But we also don't know what they knew at the time. We won't, won't know until we know. <laughs> right. I, I mean, mean they, they've, they've said he's a person of interest. He's the only person who's been named as a person of interest. And again, we, there, there could be lots of things happening that we are all unaware of. Right. I mean, that's, Correct. And and I th- and that goes back to the very first thing we talked about today. And I think that's why they released that statement. Well, and I think what the public is is upset about is, OK, this is a statement about this, but there have been no other. There's been such limited information that has come out from SLED. We don't have any other statements. And 
John Marvin told you he's frustrated. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the, he, the, he family, wants... the family is wanting answers. John Snyder, thanks, man. Well, thank you, guys. This, this is the very interesting stuff. And, and again, I think we're always fascinated by cases. And uh, I think it, it is fair and healthy for us to explore, is law enforcement doing the best job that they can? And are they doing things to the, the best practices known at the time? And that's what makes crime podcast and television shows so interesting because you get to really learn how things go and everybody has a perspective whether you like or dislike the person hearing their perspective adds to some of the interest of the case next we shall cover a little bit about what happened in our last episode when mark tinsley the attorney for the beach family told a judge that an investigator sarah capelli had videotaped Paul Murdoch within three days of his death and had followed him for like a year, I believe he, he said. And that private investigator, Sarah Capelli, has spoken out both to the Charleston paper, the Post and Courier, and to uh, Ann Emerson from... ABC News 4. What? It, give me what you picked up from Ann's interview. The biggest thing, which I think is going to be disappointing to a lot of people, if it's true, is that the investigator told her that she had not surveilled Paul Murdoch for a year. She was hired to follow him for one month, which was February to March of 2021. And our last episode in the hearing transcript was that she had been hired to follow him for a year, which would have been within three days of the murder. So that that's disappointing. If this is true, it would not be as close to the murders of Maggie and Paul. And she did say that she did turn over evidence to SLED. So maybe there is something there, but definitely doesn't seem like it was... A, if, if what she says is true, as as close to the murders of Maggie and Paul as we had hoped. I tell you, she seems she seems very believable in the interview. She also now will have with thirty days to turn over the judge, which is interesting to me because she's already given it to Sled. Can't Sled just give it to the judge? But I guess she's got to give it to the judge. And Tinsley, I guess, still maintains his version is correct. So. And also in the interview with Ann Emerson, she said the investigator said that the Murdochs had started looking at her as well. Because they had found out she was following. Paul. Right. She says that, that they, she had been surveilled by the Murdochs, and she was pretty certain because some of the evidence had come from her. So they, they, they must have thought that she found something interesting, and she does not deny that there's nothing interesting in her work. She's just saying that she turned it over, and she did not follow him, Paul, for a year, and did not do anything unscrupulous in her investigation. So uh, that will put a wrap on this episode. Where do they find us? You can find us on Facebook at Murdoch Podcast or on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. And we will talk soon. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower 
on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.